Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Today we are in chapter 6. One of the challenges of preaching the book of Hosea is that very few other people have ever done it and put it in print. So you sort of feel like you're out there sailing on your own, and it's challenging. I mean, there are commentaries written on it, but uh, commentators are pretty much common potatoes. They're, they're common. Uh, they can be helpful, but there's not too many sermons out there uh, on the whole entire book of Hosea, verse by verse, so that has increased my uh, time to study, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. But it is a challenging book because it's not a happy book. This book, this book is, is about God's unfaithful wife. It's about his people, primarily the northern kingdom, though he does include Judah, the southern kingdom, in it. Primarily about a wife, God's wife, who has been unfaithful to the covenant of marriage between the two of them. And so it's, it's very poignant in its description of God's response to that. And we get to see things about God that we would otherwise never know as he sort of opens his heart. And I don't like to use the word pain, but maybe I would use the word his compassion for the brokenness of his people, his wife, his bride, is unfaithful to him. And the only consistent thing about his wife toward him is her unfaithfulness. And up to this point, there's been no change in that. And I have the sad news today to tell you, there's still no change in that. But it has much to say to us about our relationship with the Lord because we are the bride of Christ and we can be unfaithful and disloyal to our bridegroom in the same way that Israel had been unfaithful and disloyal to her husband. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is the city of evildoers, tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder 
on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we look at this text today, we pray that your spirit would enable us to hear the word of God today, that you would give us a heart that is tender, responsive, and receptive to the truth, and that we might hear you speaking to us in such a way that it captures our attention, that it will not let us go, it will not leave us alone until the desired result is accomplished. Lord, we know that you spoke into nothing and created the world out of nothing. And you can certainly speak to us today and bring transformation to us by your word and spirit. And we pray you would do so to honor the glory of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. So in the middle of a court case, Hosea speaks these words in the first, let's say, three verses. In chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Hosea, we found ourselves in the courtroom facing the accusations of God as judge, jury, and executioner. The evidence has been laid out. The verdict of judgment is certain. But suddenly here, we have a dramatic intervention. Hosea himself, as God's prophet, speaks up. God has struck down, but he will heal. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. And he has struck us down that he will bind us up. And so the prophet comes with a ray of hope, even in the midst of doom. And I mean utter doom. The law of God has come forth. It has judged. And one of the reasons God put people under the Mosaic Covenant, which was sort of a national covenant of works for his people, was to show them their sin. When they first heard the Ten Commandments, the people responded uh, at Mount Sinai by saying, all this you have said we will do. And God marched them around in the wilderness for 40 years to show them what was really in their hearts. That they were adulterers, that they were whores, as it were, running after the false gods of the land of Canaan that they were about to enter and did enter. And so now he offers a ray of hope, a word of hope. Perhaps today you're a Christian. And you are going through a very, very difficult time in your life. And maybe it's God's discipline. Not to get back at you, but rather to loosen your grip and attachment to the things of this world and to increase your attachment to him. God will brook no rivals. He must be number one in your life. He must be the, the center, the focus, the heart and he wants your heart, and he wants my heart, and he will not stop, he will not relent, he will not quit until he has our hearts. He's passionate about that. That's what drives the very heart of God. 
God can heal you, even though God may have brought discipline to your life. Maybe he's torn you. Maybe he's broken you. Wait for God the healer. Wait for God in faith. Wait for him to bind you up and revive you and give you new life. Or maybe you're going through a difficult time and you're not a Christian at all. You're not a follower of Jesus at all. And the difficult experience may be God's wake-up call to you. God's invitation to you. Or maybe life for you is great. And Hosea is sounding the alarm because God is coming in judgment. He says they don't even realize their evil deeds. The sin that engulfs them. They are always before me. Hosea's message is this. Turn. Come. Let us return to the Lord. Turn to God the healer. And so the idea of turn and return is the Hebrew word shub. And shub means you're going in this direction and you stop and you turn and you return back to the Lord. Some of you right now are going in that direction. You are walking away from the Lord. You're not even aware you're doing it. You're deceived about it. Maybe your heart is hardened about it. Maybe you've just decided, look, I can't be a super Christian like a lot of these other Christians want to be. I'm just going to try to live the best I can. And you're gradually dull to the things of God, and you're moving away from you. And God is saying to you this morning, turn, return, come back to me. I want your heart. I will settle for nothing less than all of you. I want your heart. But how can God be both one who tears us and at the same time one who heals us? How can God tear up and at the same time heal those who turn and return to him? How can he strike us down and at the same time bind us up as his people? The answer is, of course, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There at the cross, God tore us apart, yet not us, but the one who stood in our place, Jesus, the representative of God's people. Jesus was torn. His body was broken upon the cross that we might be healed. Jesus was struck down that we might be raised up. Jesus died the death we deserve so that we might live in God's presence and have the pleasure of knowing him of an intimate, vital, living, transforming relationship with him in which we begin to see more and more every day his astounding, amazing love. And in return to that love, out of gratitude and brokenness over our own sin, and in repentance, we love him back by having a passion for him. What is your passion anyway? What really is in your heart? What is your passion? Because everybody's got one or two or three. But what is your passion? What are you devoted to? What do you think about the most? What to you would constitute the greatest thing that could ever happen to you? What is your passion? And God's word to his people is, 
There's this amazing tension in the book of Hosea, and you see it and you feel it over and over again. God loves his people with such an amazing love that he has set them apart. He has elected them. He has set his love upon his people. He has come to them again and again and again preaching, turn, return, come home to me. And yet, his people are deaf, and their ears are stopped up. And they're dumb. They don't speak to him. They don't hear him. The English Standard Version in verse, chapter 5, verse 15 says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. At first sight, it seems, appears to suggest that Israel will be punished, but when it served its sentence, God re will return. But how can sinful people atone the wrath of a holy God? The answer, again, is the cross. At the cross, when Jesus bore the guilt of sin in our place. When God wounds you, no one can heal you, but there's one glorious uh, exception. God himself can heal. And he heals you through his own wounds. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. God is a strange enemy. One of the key rules of military tactics is the value of a surprise attack. But God warns us of his coming. He calls for the horn to be blown and the alarm to be sounded. And then God provides a way of escape from his own coming. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. Does that remind you of something? It may well be that this particular verse in the book of Hosea is what Paul had in mind when uh, he says that Jesus was raised in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. He says Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, we know that one time Jesus referred to Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and nights, I, the Son of Man, will be in the heart of the earth. But this place is also another place in which Paul, I think, refers when he's talking about the third day and the resurrection. Because whether Hosea knew anything about the empty tomb, and I don't think he did, but he could see that God's people would be destroyed in judgment. He knew that if God were against him, they would be utterly destroyed. And if God tears you apart, then who in the world can heal you? And yet Hosea believed that some way, somehow, God would restore his people. A day would come when God's people would be judged by God. They would be torn apart. They would be destroyed. They would be carried off with no one to rescue them. But God, true to his gracious promises uh, and true to his gracious character. And so Hosea believed that God would destroy his people and then revive them. They would be wiped off the map and wiped out of history, but God would revive them and restore them. And 750 years later, Jesus was arrested and his disciples scattered. And there was only one faithful member of the people of God, Jesus. Jesus is not the only the Son of God. He is also the people of God, the true Israel, the faithful remnant, the true vine 
And in the end, there is only one faithful member of the people of God. And on that dark day, he was arrested and condemned and crucified. And he died, and there was no one left, not one person left. God's people were destroyed. God's people were struck down when Jesus, our representative, was struck down. There were no people of God it was the end of the line. The story was over. God's purpose was finished. And as you look across the whole sweep of human history, there was only one faithful person. The faithful remnant came down to just one person. One true Israelite. One true man of God. One true church member. And now even he is dead and there is no one left. No, not one. But three days later, our Lord Jesus Christ walked from the tomb. The people who were dead are given new life. The people who were carried away are restored. The story that was over begins a new chapter. Jesus is our representative. God's people are raised to live in his presence when Jesus walked out of the tomb. What Jesus achieved upon the cross and in the resurrection, he achieved on our behalf. If you are a Christian, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, you walked out of that tomb with him. You walked out of that tomb. Or rather, we walked out of that tomb. And it's not that individuals are promised a future resurrection. The people of God as a collective body were revived, were brought to new life. When Jesus defeated death, we defeated death. We are in Christ. His story is our story. His death and resurrection are our death and resurrection. His victory over sin is our victory on this, over sin. And so what is Hosea's application of the promise? It is this. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And so Hosea says to us, in chapter 4, there's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And because of this, the land dries up. And all who live in it waste away. We are a dry people living in a dry land, wasting away because we do not know God. But God will come to revive us. He will restore us. The picture of a dry land with no life and no greenery. And then the rains come and, and it, it bursts into life all over again. This is what will happen to God's people. When God comes, as Hosea promises in verse 2, to revive and restore, then God's people will burst into life. And says Hosea, God will certainly come as surely as the sun rises each morning. Hosea was right. On the third day, God did restore his people. As Jesus walked from the tomb, God's people burst into life. Like a desert blooming as the rain falls, God's people burst into life. And so, he tells us, to know God, press on to know the Lord. Here's his point in telling the people to return, that there's hope here, that God will restore, that God will revive, that God will give us life again. But he says, press on to know the Lord. Don't wait for God to zap you. Press on to know the Lord. Pursue God. Put yourself in a place where you are consistently exposed to his word. Meet with his people. 
Read the Bible. Plead with Him today. You can acknowledge the Lord. Acknowledge Him as your Lord. Submit your life to Him. Put your faith to Him. And with Hosea, I promise you, He will come to you as sure as the dawn. And when He comes, you will burst into life. So many of us are like the desert. We're dry. We're arid. We're fruitless. We're wasting away. And in repentance and faith, we return back to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And in that turning and returning, God gives us himself. He says, know the Lord. What is the greatest gift God can give us? It is himself. And that is what we really, 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 really want. We just don't know it. We don't see it. We don't understand it. But the greatest glory of life in this world is knowing God. Let not the rich man glory in his wisdom. Let not the uh, wise man glory in his wisdom. But let the man glory who knows this. He glories in the Lord. And when the Lord becomes that which we glory in, that which is our, so to speak, pride and joy, then life begins to be fruitful. Life begins to have substance to it. And it's just like a marriage relationship. There's intimacy. There's closeness. There's nearness. There's oneness. There's joy in each other's presence. And so that's what Hosea opens with. And it's beautiful. But alas, it appears he was not heard. Because if you look at the rest of the chapter, God begins in verse 4 with, What, what shall I do to you, with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? It is as if God is speaking as a parent here who is just frustrated beyond all measure with a misbehaving child, like a parent whose love requires that he or she punish a disobedient child. God, as it were, struggles within himself. And, and the, the question reflects the hopelessness of the present situation. Every tactic God has used to reform his people has failed. In prosperity, they ignored him. In calamity, they turned somewhere else for help. Whether uh, he promised hope or threatened wrath, the results were the same. The question God asked is genuine, yet in the final analysis, it is a rhetorical question. The covenant loyalty of both Israel and Judah was fleeting. Hosea issued an invitation. He invited them to return to God. But did they respond? It seems any immediate response was short-lived because of verses 4 through 6. God likens their love to a morning mist. God questions capture his pain and his compassion he longs to embrace him but they refuse to return to him with any depth of sincerity the word love in verse 4 is the word used to describe God's covenant love his steadfast love his loyalty God has bound himself in a covenant to us in a covenant in love with us and he sticks to that covenant love and that steadfast love endures forever. If you don't think it does, read Psalm 136 where he says his steadfast love endures forever 26 times. 
And in the face of that, these people that are his people give him no response. And the response is feeble. It's fickle. Apparently, they didn't get the message, even though he said it over and over. And what about our love toward the Lord? Our love is like a morning Mr. Dew. God's love endures forever. Our love barely lasts until mid-morning. We know what this is like. How long does our love for the Lord last? Does it get us through Sunday afternoon? God forbid, even into Monday morning? These verses take us back to the summons of chapter 4, verse 1, when, where no steadfast love was one of the three accusations made against God's people. In other words, in that covenant relationship, there was to be a mirroring of love one for the other. In other words, as God takes the initiative and pours out his love upon his people, then his responsive wife is to respond back in love to him. And yet this is a one-way kind of love. The people are weak and anemic. And, and more evidence is being presented all the time that there is no covenant loyalty here with his people. He says, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as light. When God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, he promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The prophets always reiterated those blessings and those curses. And God's word is always true, and what he proclaims by his word always comes to pass. And so the word of curse would be that which led to judgment on Israel if she continues in her resistance and disobedience and disloyalty and infidelity to the covenant. And the words spoken by the prophets would hew God's people and slay them. God acts through his word. When he spoke to the darkness, there was light. His word brings the world into being. And God continues to rule his world through his word and to judge through his word. And so the New Testament describes God's word as the sword of the Spirit. For the word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints of the marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. When Jesus rides out in judgment, he tells us in the book of Revelation, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. When we proclaim the gospel, we do bring life to some. But that word of Jesus also brings judgment to others. Verse 6 is one of the most powerful verses in all of the book of Hosea. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This suggests that the people did do something in response to Hosea's invitations. But it was very superficial. Very superficial. They sort of renewed their religious duties. They tipped their hat. They paid homage with these duties, but without any true love or acknowledgement of God. The word love in verse 4 and verse 6 is the same. It is the word for steadfast love or covenant love. God wants our love, 
not our sacrifices. Think about a human marriage for a second. Let's say, what husband wants a wife who serves his meals every evening at six, but does not love him at all? Who wants a wife who serves with resentment, who serves while she dreams of the lovers she wishes she could have? Who wants a cold, loveless marriage of mere formality and duty? Religious duties without any kind of love for God are an attempt to manipulate Him or bribe Him. God does not want our rituals. He wants our hearts. And when our hearts are not in it, our rituals become odious to God. They become a burden to God. Isaiah, who was Hosea's contemporary, said the following. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The people seek God on a daily basis. They are assiduous in their performance of the religious, religious duties, such as fasting, yet they really seek themselves. You seek your own pleasure, says Isaiah. They seek only God for what they can get from God, and this is why they are quick to complain when God doesn't deliver. I see so many shipwrecked Christians who, in their life, have believed the lie that God was supposed to provide for them a pain-free, worry-free um, bliss of existence for every day of their life if they simply get right most of what God tells them to do. And so it, what, what that is, is, is manipulation. It, it's the idea of having leverage over God, that I put him in debt to me by offering these sacrifices. I have somehow obligated God to bless me. And when he doesn't deliver, then I walk away. I'm done. I close my heart. I have no more to do with you. You have not come through. You have not blessed me the way I should be blessed. How dare you make these promises and not keep them? And there's rage there. But what that person who does that really wants, they don't want God at all. They want to use God. They want to have God as a means to their greater end. They use God to get what they really want, and it isn't Him. And I have to tell you, God brings this to my mind often that often I don't know how to love him. I just want to use him to get a better life. 
I want to use him to get things that I really want. Not him, per se, but what I really want. And it looks spiritual on the outside, and it looks like you're doing all the right stuff, and your, your behavior looks blameless, but in your heart, you are selling him out. You are prostituting yourself for what you really want. You are trying to manipulate God and manage him and get him to follow your will. And as a result, God says, I will have none of it. But the bad thing about this that God goes on to say through Hosea is not only do they want to manipulate and use me, but that kind of person whose heart is not completely mine, that kind of person who's not in love with me and enjoying that loving relationship with me will also not love other people. Do you know who are the meanest people in the world? Religious people. They're the meanest people in the world. Why? Because they're only religious people don't love God, don't worship God, don't adore God, don't have their heart completely set on God. Religious people are just doing what they can to manipulate God, to use him to get something else. And when he doesn't come through, they become very angry. And so who do they strike out at? Well, they don't strike out at God because their arms are too short to box with God. So they hit you. Every time, if you, if you go back to Adam, which he does here, he makes reference to Adam transgressing the covenant. And I don't think Adam is a place here. I think that's a historical person of Adam. And I think he's talking about the covenant of works with Adam because the Mosaic covenant under which they now function is simply a national version of the same thing. And just like Adam transgressed the covenant, what happened? All hell broke loose. Not only were there consequences between God and man, but between the man and the woman and the serpent. And then you look at the rest of Genesis as it unfolds all the way from chapter 3 to chapter 11, and you see the social exacerbation of sin, murder, violence, cruelty, hatred, strife, envy. Why? Because when you don't treasure God, you use Him. And when you use God... You also use people. And that's exactly what the prophet is saying. Jesus said exactly the same thing to the religious leaders of his day. He quotes Hosea in both Matthew 9, 10 through 13, and 12, verse 7. Listen to 9, 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, or love, and not sacrifice, for I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. What a powerful statement. Who were the religious people of Jesus' day? The most fastidiously religious, down to tithing mints and herbs, were the Pharisees, and yet the Pharisees had no compassion. I'll tell you something about legalism. How do I know when my heart's falling into legalism, which is an attempt to manipulate God and use Him to bless me? How do I know that's happened? 
because I don't like people. I don't love people. I've never, never met a legalist yet who you could ever accuse of loving people. You don't do it because legalism turns you inward. It becomes all about you, all about your performance, all about your doing, all about your reputation, all about managing your image. In Matthew 12, again, the religious leaders see the disciples of Jesus picking ears of corn on the Sabbath, and they accuse him of doing what is unlawful. And Jesus cites the Old Testament where the spirit of the law overrides the religious leader's interpretation. And he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus speaks to us now through the Spirit. I don't want you going through the motions. I don't want you just attending more meetings. I don't want you serving when it's convenient to you. I want your heart. I want your love. I want a love that puts others first. A love that delights to share your life and your possessions and your time and your emotions with the body of Christ. We cannot simply attend church on Sunday without a commitment towards serving others and making Christ known. The next step is not simply to try harder and do better. The next step is to rediscover a delight in God and in his steadfast love. And then we will press on to know the Lord. Jesus in writing his letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, addresses the church at Ephesus, and he brings out many commendations on the great things that were happening at Ephesus and the wonderful things about that church he could co commend, but he provides one condemnation, and it is a stirring condemnation. He says, nevertheless, I have something against you. You have left what? Your first love. You have left your first love. Loving God first and loving your neighbors as yourself, one flows out of the other. And as we love God, we express it through reaching out and ministering to those around us. Well, as we continue here, it's pretty much bad news. <laughs> Look at verse 8. Gilead is a city of evildoers. Evildoers is about as bad a thing as you can be called in the Bible. Because not only are you doing evil, you are evil. Very violent, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man so... Look at what's happening in this... <laughs> in, in, in Israel and even in Judah, the priests are bandits now. The priests were involved, you know, I told you early on in the introduction to this book that assassinations of kings were happening right and left during the latter part of Hosea's ministry. There were coups every other year, it seemed like. And there were all kinds of murder and violence flowing through the land, blood running down the streets. The house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. They have treated my covenant as a, as a horrible thing. If people are not faithful to God, they will not be faithful to one another. 
Turning from God leads to a breakdown in social relationships. So violent crime was rife in Israel. Hosea singles out Gilead as a city of evildoers. Hosea does not actually say that the bands of robbers are terrorizing the highway. Rather, it's a picture he uses to describe the actions of the priest. They are robbing the people. They are indulging in a bit of armed crime on the side. How does God view their sin? He says it's a horrible thing. The horrible thing that God sees in Israel may be the violence of verses 8 and 9, but it is probably the whoredom in the next line, the visible manifestation of spiritual apostasy was manifold. But perhaps even Hosea has in mind the golden calves that were in Israel, the northern kingdom, at Dan and Bethel. It's not just the northern kingdom that God sees. For here we have another southern kingdom, Judah. And he tells him a harvest is appointed and that's ambiguous because sometimes in the Bible a harvest can be a positive thing a harvest of blessing or it can be a negative thing a harvest of judgment the context there however suggests that there is a harvest of judgment and so Hosea and invited the people to return to God he said come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us he has struck us down, and he will bind us up. The sad reality is, people didn't hear him. And so this nation was destroyed. This nation was obliterated. This nation was carried off to ca into captivity. And Judah, later, by some 150 years, But the glory of Jesus Christ is this. You think you and I would have done any better than Hosea's people did in his day? We'd like to think so. But the one who came to accomplish our redemption, it's why it's so important to know that Jesus fulfilled all the obligations of the covenant for me and you. And he suffered all of the curses of the disobeying the covenant for me and you. Therefore, as we see that and grow in our understanding and, and perceive the depth of love that he shows us there, it should melt our hearts and press us as the Apostle Paul, who said in Philippians 3, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. I want to know him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Hosea chapter 6. There's so much more here than what we said or even looked at or what we can even think about. But we thank you that you are a God who is filled with compassion, who desires to give us life if we would become. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would call people to yourself today, that you would enable people to turn and return to you. Because we all know 
that we are powerless in dealing with the flesh unless your spirit empowers and enables us. And we will harden our hearts to you. And we will be deceived before you. And unless you break through that and show us the glory of Christ, our lives will be more of the same. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who love you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.